everybody this is just a quick sort of pre-intro intro uh just to kind of clarify what is happening this week because this week is silver raven week um this is mainly because i gave myself an hour before lunch to just record my review of to ride a silver broomstick which is what you're about to listen to and unfortunately it ended up being two hours long so it has been split into two episodes which will both air this week they will each be roughly one hour long basically i just wanted to give you guys the full lowdown on this book i didn't really want to cut too much stuff out because i felt like there was a lot to say about it and a lot to say about what other people had said about this book in the past so i hope you enjoy silver raven week and uh, let me know if you would like this to be a regular event just having a week devoted to one author in particular as with every other review that i post whether it is a video review or a podcast book review film review whatever everything in here is just my own opinions aside from obviously the quotes from the book which belong to the author so if you disagree with this that's fine you can enjoy something that i don't enjoy that's also fine but i'm just giving you my opinions my readings of how i took things in the book that's really all this podcast is for hello everybody and welcome back to witch fix it seems like a hot minute since i reviewed any books by silver raven wolf but uh then again, uh, I think I've been bogged down in the fiction books for a while, so we're getting right back to it with probably her most recognisable title, which is, of course, To Ride a Silver Roomstick. I actually have the two other books in this series, which I think are To Stir a Magic Cauldron and To Light a Sacred Flame. Um, I think there are only three. There might be a fourth one that I haven't found yet, but those seem to be the only three in the series. This book was everywhere when I was first practicing Wicca and first getting into it, which was, I guess, in like the early 2000s, I think, to put a label on it. Everyone, it seemed, who was American uh, was talking about this on Wicca forums, which is where I was a member at that time and where I did most of my like craft socializing. And at that point, there was like kind of a massive stigma against people who had gotten into witchcraft, either because of the movie The Craft or because of books like this one, Silver Raven Wolf's other book, Teen Witch, uh, and obviously To Ride a Silver Broomstick. So that was kind of where the stigma was against. And I never actually saw this book for sale in a UK bookshop. Uh, I didn't really go into any like occult shops at the time because I just don't live near any. But when I went into like Ottakers, Waterstones, looking for books about witchcraft or, or to the library, this book wasn't there. It was mainly books by British authors like Kate West. Um, so I never actually got to read this as a teenager and uh, I've gotten into it now. Now, I have to say, first off the bat, between this and the other Silver Ravenwolf book I reviewed, Solitary Witch, and then the really long subtitle, I actually prefer the Solitary Witch one. There's a lot more information in that that I actually agreed with and that made sense against what I already knew. This book... I can see why people were kind of down on it and why it was so controversial and why there are so many posts and things deriding it. If you go looking online for like to ride a silver broomstick controversy, you will find it, my friend, in spades. But I'm, I'm going to get into that towards the end and focus for now on just my experience 
of reading the book. First off, uh, the book is divided into four sections. They are background shadows, building shadows, performing shadows and challenging shadows. Um, I don't know whether those titles are entirely descriptive of what's in them, but section one is basically an introduction to stuff to do with witchcraft. So the jargon, like the, the magical terminology, the celebrations, the goddess and the god. Building Shadows, section two, is about choosing a craft name, meditation, sacred space, and magical tools. Section three, Performing Shadows, is about performing rituals. It's about divination, spell casting, sympathetic magic. Basically, all the magic stuff gets put in there. And then Challenging Shadows was kind of a weird mishmash section at the end, which was to do with a lot of stuff to do with like telepathy, bilocation, death. Um, whether or not there is such a thing as a white witch or how we think about good and bad witchcraft and witchcraft ethics. And then the last section is coming out of the closet. There are also some appendices, which I'm just going to ignore for the purposes of this review. So the introduction to the book is basically Silver Ravenwolf talking about how witchcraft is an enjoyable practice. Uh, and she says this is on page 15 of like the opening section. There is no fear, no hatred, no cowering at divinity. Each of us has the right to enjoy all that the universe has to provide. And this cowering at divinity theme was kind of a running theme throughout the book. And it was probably one of the things that annoyed me the most while I was reading it. Because, and we'll get into this a bit later, the whole book kind of skirts around the whole Wicca being a religion. It's definitely talking about Wicca. Uh, and not just witchcraft, even though the words are again used interchangeably in this book as they were in Solitary Witch. But there isn't a huge amount of it being like a religion in the sense of it enriching your life and being a spiritual practice. More in the sense of it being a religion in the American Christian sense, uh, in that, you know, this will be the thing that you have festivals about. And this is the thing that you will get in people's faces about and define yourself by in the same way that right-wing Christians define themselves by their Christianity. If I say the whole book came across as very American, I don't want to insult American writers of pagan books because there are some good ones out there written by Americans, but in the sense that it was quite pushy and very confident in that what it was saying was the right way to do things. And it kind of put me in mind of some of the more cult-like uh, groups um, that you can read about um, in the sense that it was like, just, you know, just try and get people off the subject of talking about witchcraft if they ask you questions about it and be evasive and don't get pinned down. And yeah, that was all very worrying. But uh, we'll get into specific examples as I go through the book from the beginning. Page five of section one was really weird because basically the book says you should do all the exercises suggested in this book. And by the time you get to the end, you'll be able to call yourself a witch, which kind of feeds back into that whole like American self-help book type feeling that I was getting from it. But then on page five at the top, it says, before continuing in this book, write an imaginary letter to me. Even though you may be an old hand in the practice of witchcraft, your letter will hold some surprises for you. Thinking about what we are and the action of defining this through a limited vehicle, such as pen and paper, are two entirely different things. So I kind of agree that maybe writing a letter about what you think witchcraft is, is kind of a good opening gambit in terms of how you want to define your own spiritual practice. I don't see why it has to be addressed to Silver Ravenwolf. That seemed a bit kind of self-important and a little bit egotistical to me because, I mean, she's not going to be my guru by the end of this book. She's meant to be t talking to me about witchcraft and not about, you know, the Silver Ravenwolf 10 paths to success. It's just a little bit odd. 
So needless to say, I did not write that letter. She then offers up a statement, uh, which was from the Council of American Witches in 1974. And it was a statement entitled Principles of Wiccan Belief. So this is, again, underpinning the idea that this book is about Wicca and not witchcraft. Um, and then she says, the following pages reprint the principles of belief. Don't skip it, even if you've been in the craft for years. Take the time to read it word for word, which I kind of agree with. because It's like, OK, well, it's in the book. I'm definitely going to read it because that's how you read books. You read each page one after the other. But then it says, don't scan it. Each year you should reaffirm these beliefs in some way, whether it be through personal ritual or group gatherings. So basically what she's saying is here are the principles of belief as laid down in 19, what did I say, 74, 1974 by the Council of American Witches. You should read these every year because these are the beliefs that you believe in, which is kind of weird because basically the whole idea of Wicca is that there is basically no central authority of Wicca. There is no one church of Wicca. There is no Bible um, although there are plenty of books called the Wicca Bible. But basically, we, we can all believe different things. There are some core beliefs to Wicca, like the Rule of Three, um, the Law of Three for Return, whatever you want to call it, and the Wiccan Read. Those are all things that basically feature in all Wiccan practices. But a 13-point belief system of what all Wiccans believe is not a thing. So um, it's, it, it was a little bit weird for me. That is not to say that I don't believe in the central beliefs that are laid out in this section because quite a lot of them are just common sense um so there's things like point 10 our only animosity toward christianity or toward any other religion or philosophy of life is to the extent that its institutions have claimed to be the one right and only way and have sought to deny freedom to others and express other ways of religious practice and belief but then point 11 is as american witches which obviously i am not we are not threatened by debates on the history of the craft, the origins of various terms, the legitimacy of various aspects of different traditions. We are concerned with our present and our future. And I kind of get the point of that is that, you know, people say like, oh, well, Wicca's a new religion. It was only invented in the 1950s. Where it's like, well, at a certain point in time, Protestantism had become, you know, the new religion that was recently invented. So I get that, like people saying, oh, it's a new religion, it, you know, don't take it seriously. Well, it doesn't really matter how old it is. If it makes sense to you and you're practicing it, then it's your religion and that's that. But also this kind of makes it seem like, you know, we don't have to answer to the idea of like, the legitimacy of our practices, which we absolutely do, because just saying, oh no, this is something that I do now is just a little bit suspect if you don't, you know, back it up in terms of linking it into like your actual practice you can't just make stuff up essentially so although i kind of agree with the points laid out in the beliefs section i disagree with the idea that these should be read and reaffirmed every year uh to kind of base your practice on because you know these might might not be the beliefs that you believe in following those beliefs she says to write down the concepts that you either do not understand or do not agree with and why keep this page handy as you study further and tick off those things that come clear to you and those that remain questionable. So I don't understand here because if I don't agree with something, OK, fine, I can write it down and write down why I don't agree with it. And that might help me form a statement of my own beliefs. But this seems to say that eventually the things I don't agree with will become clear to me and that I should keep working on it until I believe in all of them, which, again, is just kind of a weird idea. There are also various points throughout the book where Silver Ravenworth just decides to say, if this isn't something you want to do, witchcraft isn't for you and you should just put this book down and leave. And I think the first one of these occurs on page nine. She says, 
What needs are you feeling right now? What do you feel you will gain by studying the craft? What do you fear you may lose if you continue on this path? Be perfectly honest with yourself. If you are not, don't waste the ink in your pen or the lead in your pencil. You are not ready to enter the study of witchcraft. Looking at both the bright side and the dark or shadow side is extremely important in your progress. Again, a lot of things that Silver Ravenwolf says, I agree with like two sentences out of three. So yes, I think you should be able to look at the light in the dark. Yes, I think you should be able to look at what you want to gain and what you think you might lose, because those are important things to consider when getting into this whole new spiritual path. It's a big undertaking. But I don't think that this kind of pressure of like, are you being totally honest with yourself? If not, just chuck your pen away because you're just not ready that's not really conducive to doing your best work. You should just, you know, try and be honest with yourself. That's all you can do is try. And I think that's, again, one of the problems I have with this book is that Kate West's book, A Real Witch's Handbook, which I probably should review at some point, that was very much, this is what I believe, here is what you might believe, here is what some other people believe, read these things, educate yourself, and then, you know, choose the best path for you. Whereas what Silver Ravenwolf's book tends to be selling is this kind of quick idea of like here are all the things that you believe in you've read this one book now you're ready go and it's very much sort of like i am the light i am the way as opposed to here is an introduction to an incredibly broad topic that you will have to research and look into for basically the rest of the time that you are practicing it because it's ever growing and ever changing and no one ever really knows what's going on oh i can already sense this review is going to be a long one we're only on page nine on to chapter two and we get into the witch witches witch section which is basically about different types of witches generally this is quite helpful to have in some books because you know you can read things and go like oh actually that sounds like something i might be interested in and then head on down that path so we get like alexandrian tradition british traditional witch uh celtic wicca caledonian tradition ceremonial witchcraft blah blah blah, blah. What I don't get is why Gardenarian is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eighths on that list after Eclectic Witch, Dianic Witch and Alexandrian Witch. When I think Gardenarian was technically like first, like the OG Wicca. The G stands for Gardenarian, which, you know, I get a little bit annoyed when Gardenarian people come around and like look down on people because they're not lineage to an actual coven and what you're practicing isn't actually Wicca. But I do think, that you know, they should probably be first on that list because... You know, historically, I think they are kind of first. But there we go. What actually annoyed me about this section is page 13, Satanic Witch. And I was like, oh, Satanic Witch. This is interesting. Are we going to get some acknowledgement of this actually being a branch of witchcraft? Because I've kind of been interested in looking into that. But then next to it, it says one cannot be a Satanic Witch because witches do not believe in Satan. Which is another thing that kind of annoyed me about this book is there's a lot of misinformation and flat out incorrect information in here. Because some witches do believe in Satan. And I kind of get that this is a book from a time when Wicca was trying to have a very clean, pristine image. You know, we don't believe in Satan. We won't sacrifice your children. Take us seriously as a religion, please, America, and stop, you know, calling us Satanists, etc., etc. But here's the thing. Satanism is a religion. There's like theistic Satanism, there's atheistic Satanism, but for theistic Satanism, where you view Satan as a god, I'm not saying that that is the same god as like even Christian Satan. Like, I think the two are, are different. I don't know a huge amount of it, but as I understand it, theistic Satanists don't worship the same Satan as in the Bible. It's kind of a different aspect of the god. But anyway, and 
anyone of any religion can practice witchcraft because it's a practice it's not a religion so you can be a christian witch for example and however you make that work in your head is fine and up to you because i'm not getting into whether that's a legitimate thing or not but it's definitely legitimate for the people practicing it so you can technically be a theistic satanist worship satan but also practice witchcraft which will make you a satanic witch my friend and i posted this question to one of the groups that i'm in on facebook and although some love and light people did kick off and be like no witches don't believe in satan a lot of people did say yes you can be a theistic satanist and practice witchcraft and there are books out there about being a satanic witch so this is just factually inaccurate and misleading people I think um, because that is a genuine type of witch and again I kind of get where she's coming from she's trying to make it seem like it's all good and fine but people who are reading this book you have to talk to them as people who are interested in witchcraft and not people who want to attack witchcraft because if you tried to write a how-to book about witchcraft for skeptics and people who don't like witchcraft and think it's satanism you're never going to change their minds but you can inform people correctly who are actually interested in correct information over the page from that we have a section which is the wiccan witch and this is probably the longest section aside from the solitary witch but what this says is and this is on page 14 so far in this rundown of witches, you may have noticed that I very rarely use the terminology Wiccan and that many of the definitions other than individuals, names and dates are derived from my own understanding of each term. I've listened to and read many arguments for and against the use of the words Wiccan and witchcraft. I will tell you quite honestly that I have used both words when discussing my faith, depending on the recipient of my conversation. There are those that feel the term witch is an egotistical one, maybe so. Different words mean different things to a variety of people. Each individual must draw their own conclusion as to the terms they use to describe themselves. And then she basically goes on to say, I like the word witch because it invokes this kind of idea of a powerful, special, different. These are actually the words that she uses, um, like practitioner of magic. And then she says, the word Wiccan does not give me those feelings. It projects a different set of associations, weaving, church, new earth, wicker furniture, the wicker man. And then she says, it also means front a way to bring the public into accepting our belief system for what it actually is, not what their preconceived idea of a word dictates to them. So basically, according to Silver Ravenwolf, Wiccan and Witch are synonymous, and people only really use the word Wicca when they're trying to convince people that Wicca isn't demonic and evil, which is what they think when they hear witchcraft. Again, just factually incorrect, because witchcraft is a practice, Wicca is a religion, they have different origins, different practices associated with them, they are different things. If you want to be a Wiccan and call yourself a witch, which I still do for many years now, that's fine because it's up to you to say, well, I practice witchcraft, that makes me a witch. I also practice Wicca, that makes me a Wiccan. I am both of those things. But what you shouldn't be doing is going, which one of these terms just do I like better because I like to shock people by saying that I'm a witch instead of a Wiccan. It's just very strange to me. Moving on. The magical jargon section, which is chapter three, is basically just a glossary, including like terms like adept, Akashic records, fascination, uh, elder, dedication. These just defines some terms which I wasn't particularly interested in because just a lot of these words are things that basically everyone knows what they mean. If, if you've read any books about Wicca, there wasn't a huge amount in here that was wrong or incorrect most of it was correct a quick thing that i noticed in the magical jargon section on page 19 is blood of the moon which is like capitalized like blood of the moon uh that was me putting emphasis could you tell um which was about the menstrual cycle and i found it 
a little bit strange and kind of tied into a problem that I had with something in Solitary Witch about the nature of illness. Um, so what Silver has written is a woman's menstrual cycle. If this cycle occurs over a full or new moon, and you can arrange that, she is far more powerful than during any other time of the month, as long as she acknowledges this strength within herself. For too many years, women have been told that they must regard their cycle with an unkind eye, calling it a curse when actually it is a boon. Society has so dictated this to them that they feel weak, tired and disorientated because they are supposed to. Wrong. If you can rearrange your thinking on this matter, the blood of the moon can pack a powerful wallet for you. So I'm not going to get into whether or not you're powerful or not, depending on when you have your period in conjunction with the moon cycle, because that's going to be a very personal, private thing to the haver of said period, uh, and whether or not they feel that it's a powerful time for them. For a lot of people, they suffer from crippling menstrual cramps, pains. I myself have various issues with that whole cycle in the fact that I don't tend to have periods for quite large stretches of time and I think this is kind of ridiculous to say that oh women have been told that menstrual cramps exist and that they should feel tired blah, 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 because periods are bad so that's why they feel that way it's like no silver I'm pretty sure people feel that way because there's a lot of blood leaving your body and your hormones are doing all sorts of crazy and weird things that's making you quite emotional it also interacts with uh, your digestive system makes that a little bit questionable maybe that's just me just kind of upsets your stomach a little bit and you can be in a lot of pain from cramps you can get spots breakouts lots of other symptoms which are hormonal in nature and which are perfectly natural but it seems like she's saying that a period is a wonderful and positive experience and if you experience otherwise it's because you've been told to feel that way which is just incorrect and very strange um although thankfully this book doesn't seem to kind of delve into the rah-rah pussy power like quite a lot of other new releases so this is basically i think the only section where we get to hear about minstrel blood another issue that i had with this book is that it tends to blend a lot of new age beliefs in with things that are more like traditionally wiccan and witchcraft like candle magic spell crafting rituals meditation but also shoving other stuff like telepathy belief in past slime regression um, self-help subliminal message tapes and all that other kind of crap from like the 1960s peace and love movement just kind of gets washed in with all like that's not a word sarah kind of gets like bashed in with all of this other like actual witch stuff because it's I guess other stuff that Silver Ravenwolf is interested in, which is fine, and you can definitely say, as a witch, you can also utilise these tools, but she kind of makes it seem like all of that stuff is a part of being Wiccan, which it basically isn't, because a lot of it is stuff that, I mean, I don't believe in as a person, a lot of other people don't believe in, like, past lives, mind reading, bilocation, which is when you can, like, be in two places at once, and all this other, like, supernatural stuff then there is quite a baffling section called religion versus science which starts off it is my personal opinion that most people are attracted to the craft not by its religious content but by its scientific and technological allure um i don't know what that means i think a lot of people are attracted to the craft maybe not as a religion but as like a magical system which is you know like the practice of spells and things but i've never heard anyone say that it had technological and scientific allure because it doesn't have those things it, it's not really to do with actual technology 
or science in any way unless again you go into that whole realm of like brain scans of people meditating and bilocating and using telepathy and all of that kind of pseudoscience stuff which again I think of as quite American in nature and for me doesn't really feature in witchcraft at all so we're just gonna kind of skim over that section also throughout the book silver ravenwolf keeps trying to make the new generation of witches in which all of those are capitalized happen as like a phrase like she thinks this is going to catch on and this is what people are going to go out there and call themselves but it just kind of sounds twee and a little bit stupid so i'm, I'm not gonna harp on about that too much but it, it just annoyed me every time she said it then we get into special days and celebrations and I actually liked what Silver came up with here because she said it can be a bit weird to just kind of stop celebrating the things you've celebrated all your life and then start celebrating these new rituals. So you may want to do like double celebrations like Yule and Christmas for a bit because obviously it's time to spend together with your family and, and share their beliefs as well. And also I guess like Christmas isn't really about Jesus. Let's just say it for what it is it's all about santa but um what i found annoying was page 31 where she says eventually you may wish to drop some or all of the general popular holidays for instance we no longer acknowledge lent nor do we consider january 1st the beginning of the new year which in our faith begins on october 31st with our samhain festival so yes this is a feature of samhain that is like the start of the new year like the wheel of the year officially and it can be celebrated as such those themes can be incorporated into religion but bollocks are you considering Samhain to be your actual new year like on November 1st you're not going to be sitting there writing it's now the first of the first 2020 in your diary because everyone's going to think you're a nutter and you're going to be late for a lot of things because your calendar now makes nothing so I get maybe what she means is that this is when we celebrate the fact that it is a new year but the new year is buried in the culture so deeply that you cannot consider it the beginning of the next year in October because it just would not work also the new year not really a religious holiday it's more of like a cultural one uh, because it doesn't really have like any religious con like people don't go to church on the new year unless I'm missing something it's it's not really a religious thing it's sort of like independence day that's not a religious holiday either it just, it just struck me as very odd breezing through the rest of that because I wasn't particularly interested in reading about the sabbats again because they're in every single book which is obviously very useful if it's your only 101 book but I have so many at this point Jesus on to chapter six defining the all gods goddesses and human balance and at the beginning of this, we have another dig at Christianity. And you might remember that one of the, the faith statements that we were meant to write down and come back to every year at the beginning of this was our only animosity towards Christianity is, is when it tries to make us be Christian. But apparently we just have a lot of animosity for Christianity because in this book it says one of the most pivotal choices in witchcraft is your choice of the deities, God slash goddesses, you will work with. The key thought form here, I don't know why we had to say thought form and not just word is with the craft is not a religion of supplication if you intend to grovel before a god form please stop here and throw this book away so again she's just being like if you can't do it my way fuck off and then after that it says i'm not indicating that you cannot honor or thank a deity nor am i telling you that you cannot call upon them when you are in over your eyeballs the common act of sniveling at their feet is unacceptable if you truly want that type of relationship with the higher ups, there are plenty of well-cultured religions that will gladly open their arms to you. So in other words, if you actually want to worship a god, then 
go off to Christianity because that's not how my idea of Wicca works and therefore you're not ready for witchcraft if you don't want to do what it is that I say it's about, which is really weird. Now, I've come across this idea quite a lot on Instagram recently. People tend to be like, oh, well, we do witchcraft here. It's not about Wicca. It's not about religion. That's fine. Personally, I think those people are missing out on a really great spiritual relationship. But that's my view, not their view. But what I don't like and cannot stand is when they go, oh, well, they're, you know, people just like snivelling in front of gods and this kind of meme that keeps going around going, witchcraft has no rules. If I wanted them, I'd go to church. And it's like, well, one, witchcraft does have rules in the same way that physics has rules. There are ways that you do it so that it actually works. Um, but also this idea that just by worshipping a god or offering supplication or offerings to them is in some way shameful and is in some way denying your own personal power. Like, I believe that I have personal power and that I use that to make magic. But I also believe in the goddess and the god and in their power as deities that I worship and I like that relationship it's kind of familial it's like having extra sky parents if you will you know I can go to them when I'm upset I can go to them with my triumphs and for solace and it's a really rewarding relationship and one that I really enjoy and nurture probably not as much as I could be but I do try and I don't think of that as snivelling at the feet of the gods I think of it as you know having a relationship with deity. I think it's a little bit rich of a book that then goes on to talk about like pantheons like the Greek pantheon and Egyptian gods and all the rest of it to say like oh no worship is something that only Christians do because and here I'm gonna crack out my classics A level for you guys so hold on to your hats and get ready for some possible misremembered information. There's actually a pose in like ancient Greek literature which people use which is a pose of supplication where they're like um even goddesses will go to the feet of like a god like zeus and they'll put their like head on his knee and like reach their hand up to his face and this gets used a lot in like sculptures and things and that's the pose of supplication because they're like asking for a favor begging for help goddesses do this even gods do this you know asking for someone's help begging for their aid is not something to be like ashamed of doing because you're throwing yourself on the mercy of someone more powerful than you. This is something that features in, in that actual culture. And they would go to temples and worship. They would kill people in the name of their god. Like human sacrifice, offering up animal sacrifice, all these other things. They would worship their gods. So you want to come in here and you want to call up like Aphrodite for a love spell. But you're going to look down on the entire culture that worshipped her. Okay, that's going to go real well for you, isn't it? It just boggles my mind that you can call these beings gods and then just act like they're like magical wish fairies that you just call up when you need them and dismiss when you don't. It's just very, very strange. I'm going to get off my soapbox now and get on to a different chapter, but that annoyed me substantially. There's a section later on where they talk about, uh, where Silver talks about the god. This is page uh, 49. And we get a little story about how basically the god of the pagans you know the one god that all pagans worshipped because that's the thing that's real was demonized by the church and turned into satan i'm not going to read all of it but basically it starts off with the idea that the christians are trying to like integrate the old religion with the new and try and like paper over their ideas with their own which did happen in some respects but i feel like it's being exaggerated here and basically she says 
The followers of the new god brought their religion to other people by waging war. As the victors, they could impose their rules on the defeated people. These warriors of God wore white tunics with large blood-red crosses embroidered upon them. They would leave their families for years at a time and travel to far off places to defeat the enemy and make them worship their god. While in Persia, they came across a nasty god that was used in that country, and wonder of wonders, he resembled the old god of the people in Europe. He was dark, half-animal, with horns and a tail. Bingo, they thought, and rubbed their hands excitedly together. Now we know how to eradicate the old religion and bring in the new. When they got back to Europe, they told the people that the old god was really Satan because he had horns and a tail. This Satan was the fallen angel in the Bible, and of course, no one wanted to worship a fallen angel. He wasn't positive. The people of Europe really didn't understand any of this thinking. Before the Crusaders left Europe, Satan did not have horns and a tail. Now, miraculously, he did. The people of the new god insisted that if the population worshipped the old god, they were really bowing down to Satan, the king of evil. And so the myth began, and now we end it. So a couple of things about that story make no buggering sense whatsoever. I'm starting to lose my temper. I do realise that. Okay, because Satan in the Bible is not really described as having horns and a tail at all i don't think he's not really described that much as far as i understand he tends to just appear through other things like the snake in the garden of eden which i mean never explicitly says that it's satan my bible study is a little bit rusty at this point not gonna lie it seems kind of weird to me that she's saying that satan is now described as having horns and a tail when he he doesn't really in the bible uh, and also there isn't really one old god of the pagans lots of people have different gods if you look again at like ancient greece um, when you used to go around like towns in ancient Greece, the mythology would actually change from town to town as to like who Zeus's wife was, like changes depending on where you go. Like sometimes it's like Juno or sometimes it's Hera, depending on which town you go to, it just changes. The mythology changes. Same true of England. Go different places. There's like different regional goddesses and gods, different people, different places. Um, so it's kind of weird to me that she's saying that in all of Europe, so a whole continent had one god and also the way that the christians are described as you know rubbing their hands together with glee like they're dick fucking dastardly and then just like hairing it back to europe with a picture of like i'm assuming baphomet or something and just being like look he's evil i'm not going to say that they didn't say basically if you practice the old ways then that's satan but I don't think it was as neat as them finding a picture because, to be honest, they didn't need to go and find another god. They just made shit up and just said, no, that's wrong. Do it my way or I'll kill you. That's basically all they had to do. So that's weird. And then that story is followed up on page 50, which is like right underneath it. I wrote this story to sound trite on purpose. OK, well, good, because that's how it sounds. From where we sit centuries later, it's difficult to understand how one religious doctrine could so overshadow another to the point that finding the truth is nearly impossible, because this is supposed to be the age of enlightenment. It is a good story, though, for children, and an interesting one to tell around the fireplace. It can be used for festivals if you draw the childcare tent as one of your duties. It's also written to arrest your fears if you came from a Christian background. Satan and our Lord are not the same entities, and to us never were. Again, we've covered the Satan question previously. If you want to be a witch and worship Satan, you go right ahead, love. That's fine. But also, this is like, oh, this is a story you can tell children. Because we love giving children information that is incorrect and makes them hate another religion. Because that's a thing that normal people do. And definitely not something that we would criticise Christians for doing. And then after all of this, Satan is a thing that witches don't believe in. You can't be a satanic witch. We don't believe in Satan. Rah, rah, rah. Satan was papered over our God. 
in the list of gods, she includes Lucifer and says Italian soulmate and brother of Diana, father of Aradia, god of the sun and light. It just seems weirdly inconsistent to put those two things, those ideas in the same book. Like, you can worship Lucifer, but we don't worship Satan. Ah, it's very weird. Also, she kind of undermines her own point because at various points throughout the book, she talks about angels and working with angels and using angels in magic. But, I mean, if you believe in and worship angels, that that's what Lucifer is. And that's very close to Satan. Also, angels are from the major world religions like Islam and Christianity, Judaism, which you continually piss on throughout this book. And yet you're saying that you do believe in some of their entities. It's just very strange. We then get some talk in chapter eight of mental programming, which is where the subliminal tapes come in, self-help tapes, controlling and directing your thoughts, stuff to do with chakra meditations. Um, again, this is kind of an idea which I think belongs in, in Wicca 101 books, the idea of like creating thought forms, creating visualizations and meditation because that's basically how magic works is you picturing things while you do them and sending energy in different ways so that belongs there I'm not sure if i buy all the stuff about meditation tapes that seems bogus but there we go then chapter nine is about your sacred space and what i was expecting this to cover was the circle which is obviously the portable church that we put up and take down when we go in and do magic stuff and also you know practical preparations of where to store your ritual tools and things like that but considering this is basically a Wicca 101 book, this gets grandiose very, very quickly and kind of impractically so to the point where I was like, why is this being included? For example, so the first section is about the indoor sanctuary and there are come some weird things with this. We have a full paragraph about how she's going to talk about dealing with the outside world and other people's. Um, issues to do with you openly practicing witchcraft in one paragraph then the very next paragraph just says quickie witches are a dime a dozen these days then goes on a little rant about people not staying with the system for very long and just using it to flaunt their ignorance before they give up and then the next paragraph is if you feel there will be a great deal of negativity surrounding your choice of universal celebration i suggest you consider creating a temporary space why is that paragraph about quickie witches even in there it's like she fucking snapped for a second and went on a weird rant like we're dealing with like multiple personalities here because she's talking about sacred space and then she's just like oh these quickie witches they come in with their ideas and then they leave and then blah, 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 and then go straight back into talking about sacred space it's very strange this happens at various other points throughout the book is that just things will just randomly crop up like she didn't know where to put them in the book format and so we'll just end up talking about it in the middle of something else for no readily apparent reason which can make the book a little bit hard to follow she then says, I began with a temporary area due to both space limitations and others in the home. My first altar was a dressmaker's board laid out on the bed very late at night to ensure privacy. I'm not suggesting that you practice deceit, but I am indicating that there is a way around every obstacle if you are genuinely serious about your studies. In other words, I'm not suggesting you practice in secret, but if you're serious about being a witch, not like those quickie witches, you'll practice in secret and hide stuff. Again, very weird. Uh, she talks about designing indoor and outdoor sacred spaces, talking about things like lighting, plants, the kinds of furniture that you can use to like store things, like a full-on cabinet full of witch supplies. Now again, this is a Wicca 101 book. This is about like, you know, introducing people to the ideas of the goddess and the god, magic, things like that. People might read this and then go on to something else. People might get into witchcraft for a little bit and then move on to a different system or give it up for a bit. Who, who knows? People do these things. I don't recommend, and I don't think any other Wicca 101 book recommends, going out and buying a bunch of tools, lighting, 
cabinets, plants, to really like fully set up a witch corner until you're really serious about doing it. Um, when I first started practicing Wicca, I had a cardboard box which I kept under my bed, which had like candles in it and bits and pieces of like ribbon and things that I was keeping for magic stuff. I didn't have a full on set of like actual magic tools until very recently. And most books will say like, you don't need a wand and an athme and all this other stuff because you can just direct energy with your mind, with your body. Um, and it's very simple about tools. Like they'll come to you when it's time. Don't go out and buy a whole load of stuff because at the end of the day, you're not really sure this is going to work for you and this is going to be something you're going to want to do. Don't invest all your money in it right away. Sort of the same with any basic hobby. If you think you might be interested in weaving, maybe take a class. Don't buy a fucking loom and build a loom room in your house. We then get a section on magical tools, and this is pretty standard. It talks about different kinds of altars that you can have, different kinds of tools that you'll use. This is a section called Stocking Your Magical Cabinet. Again, a cabinet says in the introduction, the storage area you choose should be able to hold everything except correspondence, which I guess means letters. Like a well-designed kitchen where everything is at your fingertips, your storage area should be equipped to house all your tools and accessories. You can pick up a fairly inexpensive cabinet that is either unfinished or made of light press board. So she's actually saying buy an actual cabinet to keep stuff in. So again, like my witch stuff was in the cardboard box, which actually came free with a magazine. It was like a shoebox size box under my bed and then in a sort of wooden chest type thing, which was not a huge big wooden chest it was just like a plyboard one that my parents bought at a car boot sale it went in there for a while then it lived in a basket in my wardrobe then in another wooden box in my room quite small and now like quite a long time after i started practicing uh, i bought a secondhand bureau on ebay and had it transported by car and that's now where all my witch stuff lives because you know after 10 plus years you kind of know that you're in this for the long haul you might as well get a a bureau and I'm an adult now so transporting large pieces of furniture isn't hard if this book is meant to be teen like for teens why are teens gonna go out and buy furniture and how are they gonna do that when they most likely don't have a car and might even be hiding their magical practice from people they live with another piece of inconsistency and misinformation is presented over two pages in this section because under the section for the wand at the end it said Wands traditionally stand for communication and matters of business, so if you wish to choose between your athme and your wand in a particular situation, dealing with business or communications, you would pick for wand. Here we are being given the idea that the wand and the athme are different and used for different things. And that is on page 88, but then on page 90, so a whole two pages later in the athme section, it said... The wand and the athme are basically interchangeable. This is more a matter of style and preference than of actual reasoning. So within two pages we've been told the wand is used for this, use the athme for other things, and now under the athme section we're being told, eh, use it for anything. And then underneath that in the bollying section it says, the bollying is a tool used for cutting things in the physical realm, whereas later on in the candle magic section it says to carve candles with your athme. So... I feel like a lot of these terms are being confused, conflated with each other. It's just not very clear for new practitioners. And it makes basically the book look like it doesn't know what it's talking about, which is very, again, I don't know if this is a question of bits of it being written 
at different times and then trying to put them together in some sort of order but it just comes off as a little bit sketchy and a little bit inconsistent we then get a big old list what else will you find in a witch's cabinet on page 92 and it says things like a decanter glass bell jars glue magical jewelry india ink rope statues seeds talismans tobacco various other things like you need all this stuff but you don't need all this stuff and most i'm gonna say good most good wicker 101 books will be like tools can come later get down this like visualization practice now and you can make very simple spells with very little you don't need all of this extra stuff you need like a scoop of dirt from your garden some water from the tap a shell from the beach maybe a feather that you found on a walk some acorns just things that you can find around about that are free and vaguely innocuous and maybe some candles because you can buy those anywhere but this is getting really into stuff like it lists a potpourri pot like what are you going to do with that on page 94 95 it talks about how magic will travel which is all about traveling with your magical tools I don't know why you would need to do this. The reasons that she gives are like going places to do workings or readings for people. And this is another theme with um, Silver Ravenwolf's books. And I commented on this, I think, in Solitary Witch when it talks about, um, I think, doing tarot readings for people um, or doing spells for people, that she gets into the commercial side of things very fast. It's like, you know, we're halfway, not even halfway through a Wicca 101 book. And it's already like, oh, when you go and you know do rituals for people. I guess for money or just you know to help them out you know like practically you don't really know what you're doing yet you've learned a few meditations you haven't even read the part about spell work but you know here's how we should travel with our magical tools because we might need to do that at a moment's notice because we're self-important witches some worksheets are then provided in the next section which is about cleansing and consecrating charging your tools I don't know why you would need these worksheets but they are provided for you if you wanted to print them off and use them and at the beginning of the worksheet silver doesn't say i've provided this for like ease if you want to know the kind of things to note down what she says is follow the instructions carefully at the end of the instructions for this formula is a spell slash formula worksheet if possible make copies of this format to include in your notebook you will be using it often although using a typewriter would make it easier to read i suggest handwriting the information to set it firmly in place in your mind no i'm not going to do that and you can't make me so there i have no problem with saying here are maybe some of the things you want to note down when you're talking about spells that you performed like for example she has put type of spell date and time reference astrological phase specific purpose ingredients list location results deities but maybe put that as like a little bullet point list and say like create your own worksheet from this or just keep these things in mind when making notes not here is a double page worksheet which she has included spaces for you to write your responses on because i feel like i am reading a school textbook now uh, and i don't need an actual hand-holding teacher thank you i want to be treated like an equal like oh hey this is a thing that i know about and here is some of that knowledge do with it what you will explore your own path not here is sister silver's school of witchcraft and we're going to do things my way again it's just very kind of a little bit egotistical because it's like write a letter to me use my worksheet and I, I just don't get along with that type of writing at all we then get into magical record keeping and she talks about keeping a personal journal a dream journal and a book of shadows but then when she talks about books of shadows it gets a little bit weird 
It says, the witch's most important form of record keeping is the legendary Book of Shadows. There is some debate on whether or not every witch has always had a Book of Shadows. So I, I don't really understand what is meant by that. What do you mean every witch? Because it feels like this is implying that witchcraft is a continuous unbroken tradition that has been carrying on underneath the grasps of Christianity for centuries and has now been reawakened and we're all practicing the same thing, which again is something that I don't believe and which is kind of historically very much in doubt and has I think been debunked a lot and then it says there is argument that many of the witches of the old religion again the singular old religion that everybody practiced before Christianity were illiterate and therefore could not have kept written records perhaps that is true of medieval witches in Europe for a particular time span however I don't believe this assumption is entirely true me neither but for different reasons and then in the next paragraph, after speculating that maybe people were taught to read secretly inside covens, it says, perhaps because of persecution, initiates were no longer taught to read and write for fear the information would fall into the wrong hands. Ordinary pictures could be drawn for a witch to remember a spell or formula in a cookbook or even a family Bible. I've heard of scenarios where the magistrates of the coven kept all the records. There is reference to the man in black as well. Either of these men were learned enough to keep accurate records. The first of business in the community, the second of craft business and tradition. The man in black was responsible for many covenant arrangements, who knows for sure. This sounds like bollocks that's been made up. I've never read this anywhere else. Um, it could be something that she's gotten from somewhere else or how covens work. But again, this is a book that primarily aimed at solitary practitioners. So that's neither here nor there. Also, this sounds like a cult. Like, we're not going to teach you to read and write because you might give away our secrets. That's sketchy as fuck and very close to the idea of sermons and things were only like read in Latin because then like the common people couldn't read the Bible for themselves and it had to be interpreted for them by priests. I don't even know what we're getting into here. It just seems like a lot of made up rubbish. On page 122, we're given a generic ritual format, which follows steps A to H. The first one is ritual preparation. She talks about that for a bit. And then it's opening the circle, which is, again, a step provided in the book. The statement of purpose in the invocation of deities. Um, but then we get to a really kind of weird section, because in the middle of all of this ritual framework, after like the statement of power and the invocation of deities, which is actually referenced in the like point by point list of what the ritual contains, we suddenly go into a different ritual altogether. So according to the chart at the beginning, after the meditation sequence comes thanking the deities and closing the circle. But in practice, in the actual long written form of the ritual, there's a meditation sequence. And then suddenly, for no real reason, it goes here is an example of a dedication sequence. Where is this on the chart? This doesn't appear here at all. There is a section after all of this ritual stuff, which is the dedication ritual, but that's probably where this section should be and not slap bang in the middle of trying to explain other things. But it says, I cast the circle this night to perform the act of dedication of my mind, body and spirit to the lady, her consort and the religion and science of witchcraft from this day forward i will honor and respect both the divine and myself i will hold two perfect words in my heart perfect love and perfect trust i vow to honor the path i have chosen the divine and myself pick up your wand or athme and say i vow to hold the ideology of the craft in my heart and my mind for the totality of this lifetime and beyond where is the year and a day of study 
where is the you know i dedicate myself now to the study of the craft to see where it takes me a lot of the self-dedication rituals that i've read previously in other wicker one 101 books have been a little bit more gradual we are only 127 pages into a book which for most people would have been the first book they read about being a witch and apparently we are already already dedicating our entire lives and our afterlives to the service of the deities of the craft which again seems kind of culty and again seems a little bit premature again on page 130 the dedication ritual begins with before you take this first yet final step it's like well no because you can decide to stop practicing you can you can leave witchcraft that doesn't seem to be an idea that she is very au fait with she's got this idea in her head that if you leave you're a quitter and you weren't ready for it but you know sometimes things just aren't for you and you move on to other stuff now i've negged on the book quite a bit and uh, there is some interesting information in there and i think i have mentioned where some points interested me and where there were interesting ideas like you know dual festivals and thinking about those there are some aspects of it which are quite practical and down to earth when it comes to talking about you know how it works when you transfer to a different religion essentially culturally speaking however there are some sections in the book that make fuck all sense to me and chapter 14 is one of those it's called web weaving i didn't know what that meant but it turns out what it actually means is networking um which is really very strange uh, it says that you can only derive so much from reading books which is kind of ballsy for silver ravenwolf because you know she has like a lot of books on the market um but she's basically talking about web weaving in terms of meeting or speaking with other pagans instead of just learning from books which is an interesting thing however this section is very dated now because it's all about writing to people and using snail mail for example step one is acquiring a p.o box and you know talking to the wiccan pagan press alliance which is very twee um and it gives some ideas about you know safety when meeting people which is fine and again like definitely something that i would encourage people to uh <laughs> consider if they're going to meet people in real life especially people they've met online although online isn't really talked about and it also talks about developing a filing system for your correspondence which again i think is just a kind of a chance for her to talk about her correspondence and how many people she's in contact with and how much correspondence she receives and how she deals with it because i don't think your average person is really going to need a filing system especially not now it also talks about like going to workshops um festivals courses and things like that um which i yeah it's worth having as a section in a book especially one geared towards i guess maybe younger readers um i don't know if it needed to be in this book necessarily or at this point in the book because this seems like a more sort of advanced step like you would have been practicing by yourself a little bit more before you started going out you know in public like so far all we've done is a couple of meditations bought a butt ton of magical tools and now she's sending us out there to wicked events which is i guess maybe why people got so annoyed with so many of these people turning up on forums and stuff knowing basically nothing uh then we get into divination and this is probably one of the chapters that i had the most to say about so strap in because we're here for for a long time at the start of the fortune telling section we get some i don't know kind of racist stuff uh, because she says 
Today, we often see reports of swindlers and charlatans who are in the market to steal sizable amounts of money from unwitting clients. I myself have been to women who have said, give me $80 and I will burn candle for you. My sister will fashion it by her own lovely hands and we will pray for you under the light of the full moon. Baloney. You may have gotten an inkling there that that's written phonetically in kind of, I guess, a racist accent. Not not good. Uh, but that's not really the, the issue that I had with the uh, the whole idea of this chapter. So we get into reading for others on page 152. You might remember me saying in Solitary Witch that I thought it was kind of weird that the thing that we talk about or that she talks about when she starts talking about divination is doing it for other people, providing it as a service, like, you know, cashing in, getting that money. Um, so under the section reading for others, it says... There are two kinds of readings, those for magical people and those for once-borns, a term Breed Fox Song, publisher of Sacred Heart, uses. Once-borns belong to other religions that do not believe in reincarnation or magic. Reading for a magical person is easier in that they are more willing to accept your methods and thought forms. That's page 152. That is incredibly offensive and weird because like up until we started reading this but let's just pretend that we're teenagers or you know we're adults in like the early 90s and this is the first book we've picked up about witchcraft we're still kind of getting used to this whole belief system we haven't even covered that witches believe in reincarnation yet by the way that's later on in the book so again this is kind of weirdly out of sequence but apparently people who are from other religions are once borns and they're not as good as magical people they're, they're not as easy to do readings for because they're once borns and we are reincarnated people because we're special like we don't even know that we believe that yet as witches you might not believe that as a witch you don't have to believe in reincarnation to be a wiccan or a witch it also kind of feels like she's just completely forgotten about any other religion where reincarnation is a belief that they have like for example hinduism major world religion has a belief in reincarnation so how exactly would those people be once borns and saying, oh, well, this other person used it in their book, that's weird too. And just generally having a name for non-magical people, and here I'm using quote marks, is kind of mean and derogatory. Anyway, this once-born bollocks does continue for quite a long time, so I thought I'd mention it. Um, she talks about how once-borns might try and test you as the fortune teller and might, you know, try and trap you and make things awkward and I guess that is kind of a concern in doing readings to people you don't know very well, that a group of people might like gang up on you and start picking on you and saying things like, you know, you don't know what you're doing and just, just generally being unpleasant. But she suggests like testing them by like taking all the major arcana cards out of the deck and like asking them to pick one so that you can see what they are all about, if you see what I mean. It's just a very strange idea so we go on a little bit about different things to do with readings and she starts talking about long distance readings or ldrs again most people who are starting out in witchcraft will probably read for themselves so maybe give them a bit of information about reading for themselves and also about maybe going to get readings from other people and not telling them how they can start doing readings long distance for people for fun and profit there's a section on page 158 called dependence let's get into that shall we it says, although it is wise to consult your divination tool when a difficulty arises before doing a magical purpose or just to check things out for the immediate future, 
one should never depend solely upon the information received. That's a good point. Very salient advice. I mean, if you get into divination, you might start just doing it for everything and feeling like paralysed by indecision because you're trying to predict the outcome of every major decision in your life or make those decisions based only on the cards. And that's not a good idea. Unfortunately, after that very good point, the, the whole section kind of crashes and burns with this little gem. Nor should you allow a client, friend or querent to become dependent on either yourself or your divination skills. A once born will get hooked before a magical person because they are totally unfamiliar with the intricacies of magic and divination. Phone calls in the middle of the night, a knock on the door during the supper hour, or an insistence that they must see you immediately uh, may herald dependence. Although this does wonders for the reader's ego, it will spell disaster in the long run. So apparently once borns, muggles, whatever you want to call them, are, are so dumb and are so non-understanding of magic and all its intricacies that they will just get hooked on your tarot readings and will come scratching at your door at midnight needing a fix, needing you to, to read their cards for them because they're so non-magically talented and so simple-minded that they will need you to do that for them. First up, you can get an app on your phone that will read your tarot cards for you. It's free. There's lots of them. Go and look it up now. Also, people can just read their own tarot cards. It's, it's not that hard. Originally, tarot was a game that was played by lots of different people, very similar to like the Ouija board. It was used very widely. Uh, anyone can do it. It's not just magic people. Also, again, very insulting towards people who aren't following a magical religion. There's a lot of people who read tarot cards who aren't witches. You can read different oracle cards. Uh, there are lots of different decks of like angel cards or various things that Christian people read. You know, it's it's not just a witch thing. The idea that it's only witches who can handle the responsibility of divination is just ridiculous to me. And again, it's kind of contributing to this puffed up sense of self-importance that started off with, oh, I'm going to call myself a witch, not a Wiccan, because I like the way witch sounds. We've gone through this kind of faux persecution complex thing of how Christianity ruined everything and how they persecute us, even though, you know, I don't really feel that persecuted as like a modern witch and a white woman in England. You know, I think my persecution fairly low. But no, apparently we are the most persecuted group in the world and the most powerful. And these once-borns, they just don't understand us. I think this is probably the thing that pissed people off most about this book, to be honest. Kind of adding to that kind of egotistical idea of this kind of like, write me a letter use my worksheets she's also invented her own tarot card spread called the silver spread so um that's not something that i'm going to be doing she also says on page 161 which is prior to the silver spread i use the tarot right side up only it is a personal choice based on the premise that there are 78 cards in the deck with a multitude of meanings and combinations to invert and distort the meanings is rather senseless Again, she doesn't say, I consider this senseless, although she does say it's personal pre preference. What she says is, it's personal preference because doing it any other way is illogical. That's not really saying that it's your own personal preference, it's saying that you have found the right way to do it. Also, again, there are 78 cards in the deck with a multitude of meanings. Yes, that is correct. Some of those meanings are dependent on the cards being upside down. Each card has, like, the meaning the right way up, the meaning the other way up. That's a, a method of divination that a lot of people use and not one that you should probably just broadly say is wrong or illogical. 
3R2 channel Spock. We'll get into her use of logical and illogical later because she does start using it a little bit more to describe things that she does do and things that she doesn't do. So look forward to that. I've been recording for over an hour. It's now one o'clock and I'm going to go get a sandwich. So hold that thought. That about wraps it up for part one of my review of To Ride a Silver Broomstick by Silver Ravenwolf. Hopefully you will join me in part two where I return with a sandwich and continue discussing the latter half of the book. In the meantime, you can always take to Twitter or the comment section of this YouTube video or the comment section on CastBox to let me know what you think of the first part of this. And if you've actually read the book, I'd like to know your thoughts on it and what you feel about it and what you got from it because I'm genuinely interested to hear from you guys and don't forget you can always rate the podcast on iTunes. I'll see you in the next part. Bye!